Open your Bibles, please, to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. The concluding verse to Psalm 32 was that the righteous should be glad and should be shouting for joy over the forgiveness of their sins. That is the God that we're worshiping, though He is infinite and though He is incomprehensible and incomparable and independent and immutable and immortal. He is a forgiving God, and He has forgiven us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and we should be shouting for joy. Amen. All the things that God is make Him very distant from us when we consider only His inherent attributes. The fact that He is invisible, that He fills heaven and earth, that He's eternal, and the other attributes like that make Him very distant, very great, and very unapproachable. And yet, the second category of attributes that we're seeking to consider is the fact that He wants us to know Him. And He's made great efforts for us to know Him. He has revealed Himself in the creation so that the things of His Godhead are clearly seen, the Bible tells us. He reveals to us that He wants us to know Him. His providence daily in our lives, in large-scale events, And small personal details reveal Him to us. His judgments that we looked at last Lord's Day and His names that He wants to be known by in the Word of God help reveal Him to us. He is also legislative, meaning that He writes laws. And because He writes laws, we can find out a great deal about Him from His laws. This attribute is God's disposition to reveal... His nature and His will to men by His commandments. God did not have to reveal His nature or His will by commandments to us. The reason that He did is because His nature requires it of Him, which makes it part of His nature and thus an attribute that God is legislative. He doesn't let creatures just exist and do as they will. He reveals to them and communicates to them what He would have them to do. He could have left us in Eden and seen what we would do, but no, He told us what He would have us to do. Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. And so this is no surprise to Him. This was not a response to man. This was His intention all along. We know the character of our legislators, and we know the character of our judiciaries or judges by their voting record or by their legislative record. By the laws they propose or the laws they vote for or the laws they vote against. We learn about their character and their convictions that way. We learn about the character and convictions of God the same way. And he's given us over 700 laws and we can't have a whole study of the law of God this morning. Though that would be one great subject to consider because it reveals his character. How often did God connect a law to these words? And these words are found in Leviticus 18.4, and there's many of these, many dozens of them. Leviticus 18.4, Ye shall do my judgments and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Notice, I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. I am, I am that I am your Elohim. 
I am your God. I am the only God. I am Jehovah God. I am the I am that I am God. And I want you to remember that because I've given you my judgments, my ordinances to walk in them. Notice the connection of who he is with what he legislates. And it's re- now it should be coming back to you that you have read this combination repeatedly, but I'm telling you, it's many dozens of times in the Word of God that to give credence to His law, He invokes His identity for us. We consider it an attribute, therefore. Look at Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. We want to know God. This is the subject of the preaching series, knowing God. He has made himself knowable. The heavens declare the glory of God. His providence has left a witness in the earth that he is good. His judgments show him for what he is. And he's given us his law. Deuteronomy 29 and the 29th verse. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. God has secret things that he has not revealed to us. The mystery of his will which is communicated in time. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has things that he is going to do that he doesn't tell us, but he tells us many things, and those things are for our families and for us to do as he has commanded us. If you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, which you read last evening, let's remind ourselves of some aspects of his law. First given to Moses in its codified, expanded form, and then we have the perfect law of liberty in the New Testament as well. His law showed his and his law's superiority to any god of the heathen or any of their laws. And I hope that you enjoyed the verses that we read in Deuteronomy 4. Verse 5, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely, This great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? The combination of a superior law and the close presence of God go hand in hand in God's view of things, and in Moses' view of things. As the nations looked at Israel, they realized Israel had a God that was very near them and unlike their gods, and that God had given them statutes and judgments far superior to theirs. This is how we know God from another angle, from another attribute. We can know Him by what He has legislated. We just sang, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. When there are laws given and a revelation provided that converts or changes or turns our soul to do what is better, to do what is good, 
to aim us toward the ultimate good, the glory of God, you have run into legislation that is not human. You have run into legislation that is divine. Bless and praise His holy name. He wants you to know Him. It takes effort, even in this information age, to get the voting record of a legislator and to be able to look at all the laws that he has voted for or against, summarize them, and come to some conclusion about his character. But I think I can make this pleasant for you in just a moment. I'm just laying the foundation right now. I love the law of God. Do you love it? It should be sweet to your taste, like honey in the honeycomb. It should be valuable in your possession, like much fine gold. Oh, Lord, thank you for your law. His law not only shows his and his statutes superiority, it shows us how to worship him. Flip over to Micah chapter 6. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Did that help? Micah chapter 6. This is the law of God. These things are precious. These things reveal Him to us. They show how much of Him He wants us to know. Does He care about birds' eggs in a nest? You're kidding me. The infinite, incomprehensible God cares about eggs in a bird's nest? And you're afraid of Him? You are of so much more value than any bird or bird's egg, as He would say in Matthew. Micah chapter 6, verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? When you hear his inherent attributes, 12 of them, preached properly, he is distant and great. His greatness is unsearchable. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And you have to ask yourself, or you should, how do I approach him? What do I bring when I come? And so he tells us in his law how we can worship him. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil, a sacrifice only David or Solomon could offer? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? That's what pagan gods would require. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Should I give my children in child sacrifice to make peace with God? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, treat everyone fairly, and to love mercy, be passionate about forgiving others, and to walk humbly with thy God. Make others more important than yourself. That's what you bring. And that's his law. He's revealing himself to us. This infinite, independent, invisible, omnipotent, omniscient God is like this. We don't have to bring a costly sacrifice. We don't have to give our children so that it is the dearest, most expensive offering we could possibly give him. We just come this way, as he said there in the eighth verse, justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly. Thank you, Lord. Come back a few pages to Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. He is legislative. 
it is part of his nature. When he has creatures, he gives a law that guides and governs their behavior because disorderliness is contrary to his nature. Righteousness is his nature. And so he legislates righteousness. And as we look at his laws, we learn so much about him. Hosea 6.6, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Is that the kind of God you can worship? Mercy is more important than sacrifice. When the two come in conflict, he's on the side of mercy. As the disciples discovered when they were accused by the Pharisees of breaking the law of God, but Jesus properly interpreted Matthew chapter 12 and reminded them of this passage, which is the Old Testament, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. There were his disciples picking corn, harvesting it and eating it on the Sabbath day. And the Lord Jesus delivered them from the false accusations of those that did not know the God of the Bible, though the scriptures were theirs. And they had memorized this verse as children. Thank you, Lord. His law is wonderful. And brethren, he discriminates in the giving of this law because he loves his children. And if you have it in your lap, and if you care about it, and if you're a little bit excited right now, and I'm going to jack you up a little further, as Zach would encourage me, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah 9, because he's given you his law, and he's given you a heart for his law, obviously he's your God. Can't you figure that out? You wouldn't be here, and you wouldn't care. You wouldn't have it in your language. You've had it all your lives. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 13, Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. I like that verse. It's qualifying the law, judgments, and statutes. In verse 14, And madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws, by the hand of Moses thy servant. Notice this was for Israel that God's law was given. Look now at Psalm 147. Psalm 147 and the last two verses of this psalm. You be excited and thankful that you have his law. He sent it to you or you wouldn't have it. Amen. You love his law. He put that love in you for his law, or you wouldn't have it. Now, as we combine the two, that we have it, and we have a love for it, you're going to see in it his character of what a benevolent, merciful, loving, wise, prudent God he is. And you may put your trust in him, and love him, and delight in him, and walk with him for the rest of your life in this world and for all of eternal life in the world to come. Psalm 147, verse 19, He showeth His word unto Jacob, His statutes and His judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for His judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. You say, well, there's other churches today that have the Bible. You would be shocked at the number of churches that still bring their Bibles to church. Very few do it because sound bites from a variety of translations are put on a screen 
not because they fear the word of the Lord or are seeking to live by every word of God, but they are looking for politically correct sound bites from whatever translation will word it in the way that's most pleasing to them. And when they're there, they're not trembling before the word of God. They're not delighting in it the way that we do. They're just using it for a little bit of support material for some positive prosperity message that's being delivered. God's made a difference in your life. He's put a preserved word in your laps and he's put a passionate desire in your hearts. Look at that and consider that God is your God and you are his people. And then we'll consider what he has said in that precious scripture. Scripture is of great value to know Him. Look at Proverbs chapter 29. You can know God through His Word. Proverbs 29 and verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Our relationship and communion with God and our prosperity depend upon there being God's revelation. That's what the vision is. There's no revelation from God. We know that that's the intent of the first half because of the explanation provided in the second half. Those that have the law. Sometimes the law disappeared in Israel. Remember, Josiah found it in the ruins of the temple. It's a great blessing to have the law of God, and from it comes communion with God and prosperity. It is better than hearing God's voice from heaven in the presence of Elijah and Moses. According to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. And brethren, our God has given His legislative decrees to us to know what He thinks is good and right, wise and proper in all sorts of situations. He's put a love for it in our hearts. And then this God, For us to know Him and to learn those precepts and to keep them, He promises to reward us. That's unbelievable. Look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. How big is your reward going to be if you pay your taxes? How big is your reward if you drive the speed limit? There isn't any reward. Those are man's laws and statutes. But he's the God of heaven. Those are elected officials. They should be paying us back for putting them in office. God's in heaven. He owes us nothing. But he's chosen. If you'll delight in my law and keep it, I'll add a bonus. This is the God of heaven. And people want to look at the God of the Old Testament and say, What a cruel being. Oh, indeed. Indeed. They took the land of Canaan with wells already dug. Digging wells with a post hole digger is tough work when it's 200 feet deep and you've only got a five foot handle. That means you're 195 feet down. Just think about it. The wells were dug, the city walls built, the houses constructed, all furnished, and the vineyards mature and growing grapes that it took a staff between two men to carry a bunch. Praise His name. Psalm 19, verse 11. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great 
reward. Not just a little reward, but great reward, brethren. Now we sang just a few minutes ago verses 7, 8, and 9, and 10, and 14 of Psalm 19, but we left off verse 11. And there's two more things that we should know about the law of God. You know, verse 7 says it's perfect and converts the soul. It says that it is sure and it makes wise the simple and all the things that we sang. But verse 11 says, moreover. That's not good enough. That's not complete. There's more to God's legislative efforts that reveal Him to us. By them is thy servant warned. He tells us in advance where we could get in trouble naturally and where we could get in trouble spiritually with Him. He warns us. Have you ever been punished on the job, in school, or by parents where you did not think your master or your manager or a teacher or your parents had adequately conveyed to you the seriousness of your their rule or command and so you got punished without warning or you felt without warning? But notice it says about God, He warns us about the trouble that we could get into, naturally or spiritually. And then it says, in keeping of them, there is great reward. The Bible says in James chapter 1, that if we look into the perfect law of liberty and continue therein, we shall be blessed in the deed. Amen. You know, there's looking into the perfect law of liberty and seeing our blemishes, correcting them, and then going our way. But if we do that, we do not just realize the perfected character and conduct we have, but there's going to be a blessing in it from God by continuing in His perfect law. The first and the greatest commandment of the law of God, what is it? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. That shows us a lot about Him right there. He is a lovable God. He is a God that ought to be loved, should be loved, can be loved, and we should be giving Him all of our love. This fair God, this righteous God, this wise God says that He is worthy as the object of all of our affection. And that's the first commandment and covers so much of the whole law. Jesus said about the general characteristics and traits of God's law that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. That's what the Bible says about the law of God. But aren't there 700 commandments or so in the Old Testament? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. First John chapter 5 and verse 2 tells us His commandments are not grievous. If you will keep His commandments, it will bring you the greatest happiness in life and the reward of heaven. They're not grievous. They're not painful. Now, brethren, we can't study the whole law of God. But let's turn to Exodus 23 and see if we can make a run at a few illustrative laws just to... Enjoy this attribute of God. Exodus chapter 23. This one was a very difficult aspect of my outline to say enough is enough. And if you have a favorite or favorites in the law of God that you want to send me, I'll stick them in the outline. No matter that this point is well established. Exodus 23 and verse 12. Six days shalt thou do thy work. And on the seventh day thou shalt rest, that thine ox and thine ass may rest, and the son of thine handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. This is the Sabbath commandment. This is one of the Ten Commandments. 
This is the special sign that God had with Israel, that He was their God and they were His people. This was His blessing to them to reward them for seven-day-a-week labor in the land of Egypt. That is explained in other passages. I want this passage for the purpose that we are looking at the law of God. It is an attribute of God, a declarative attribute, because it declares something to us about God. He wants you to rest. He wants your ox to rest. You're kidding me. The infinite eternal God that inhabits eternity cares about my ox getting rest? Read it and cheer. The righteous should shout for joy. This is our religion. This is our God. This is how He reveals Himself. He tells us why there was a Sabbath commandment. Was the Sabbath commandment because He was pooped out after working six days on creation and needed the seventh day off to recover? Our God could have created in less than six nanoseconds. He created in six days and rest the seventh simply to give us a pattern to rest the seventh so that our ox and our ass and our servants may rest and that they all might be refreshed. And isn't it true? If you work hard for six days and have that seventh off, I can tell you something about Monday morning if you have the right attitude. And it doesn't take much to be a right attitude if you're a Christian. You are ready to go again. You know, on Saturday afternoon, you were ready for Sunday. But on Monday morning, you're thankful for Sunday and you're ready to go again because you've been refreshed. Remember, we're not, I'm not teaching you about the law of God. I'm teaching you about God. Right. Why did he give the Sabbath commandment? You know, the Seventh-day Adventists think that the Sabbath commandment is some sacred institution above all other commandments. And that God gets some particular jollies out of us on the seventh day, Saturday, worshiping Him instead of the first day or Sunday. When the whole Bible tells us it was only to give Israel some rest because they had worked without weekends in Egypt for 215 years. Save the years that Joseph was remembered. There's more that could be said on the Sabbath. I, I just want you to look at the verse and realize this God that we are to tremble before... And that we are to fear, but that fear is simply a reverent admiration and worship of Him and desire to please Him wants you to rest and be refreshed. And your beasts of burden, your working animals, praise His glorious name. I just learned something about Him is what you should be saying to yourself. I see that clearly. God is incredibly merciful. Even to four-legged beasts. Look at Leviticus 19. Leviticus chapter 19. How frustrated do you get reading the newspaper? How frustrated do you get checking the Drudge Report? How frustrated do you get seeing what our government does? Seeing what they legislate? I'll give you a law that every time you read it, every commandment you read, you're punching the air. There is righteousness in the earth. There is prudence on a throne somewhere. And that somewhere is the God of heaven. Look at Leviticus 19 
and the Lord's ideas on how to take care of the poor. Leviticus 19 and verse 9. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. He wants you to know, I am Jehovah. I am, I am that I am your God. This is what I decree. Now notice, it works, it's a benefit to both. The man who's out doing his field, what does he have to do when he comes to corners? It takes a great deal of time to slow down, stop, retrace your steps, and get everything that's in the corner. If you're doing your vineyard to try to get every grape, there is a point of diminishing returns. You want to go through that vineyard gathering about 90 to 95% of the grapes Otherwise, if you look for the other 5%, the additional time to get the incremental 5% is greater than 5% of the time. You're costing yourself money. Just look at these commandments, please, and enjoy them. So here's a farmer. He jumps on his John Deere, and he's got a square field, but he does it in circles. He never has to stop and turn left or right because he just does circles smaller and smaller until the field's gone. He goes home. The corners are left there. God blesses him because he's contributed to God's welfare program. The poor come out and say, look at Farmer Brown. He's left us the four corners. We don't have to go looking for it. He's put it right where we can get our hands on it. They work for their living instead of taking free handouts. Right. Wonderful. This is the God of glory. And so when you read a passage like that, you see it from the poorest standpoint, they work. You see it from the richest standpoint, they're expedited. And God will bless them for it. Amen. We could say more on that and welfare and so forth, but there it is in the Word of God. Right. How about since we're in Leviticus 19, we drop down to the 17th verse. This is a description of tough love. And don't emphasize the word tough, emphasize the word love. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. The world defines love as, I don't want to hurt his feelings. I wouldn't ever want to criticize him. I'll just let him go and do what he's doing. But the Lord says that isn't real love. That's hating your brother in your heart. If you know he's doing something wrong, you should correct him because you want to help him be better. God's love is better than this world's love. Love. It's It may be tough love because you've got to go rebuke your brother, but the Bible says if he's a real brother, he's going to love you more for rebuking him than the kisses of an enemy when you didn't tell him what he was doing wrong. This is the law of God. This is about loving your neighbor. It tells us how to love a neighbor. This isn't loving a neighbor by sending him a card on his anniversary or having a housewarming when he moves into the subdivision. This is loving a neighbor by keeping him from sin. And it tells us about the Lord. And it tells us about how we love our children. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Because that's real love. He that loveth his child chastens him betimes. Early in life. And early when he is sinning. 
You know, I referred to Numbers chapter 5 last Lord's Day that, re- that tells us about the, the test of jealousy. And you think about the test of jealousy. God knows a man's heart with a beautiful wife. He knows the fear that can come into a man's heart that may be insecure when he's away on a business trip. And so he provided a remedy. But at the same time, he knows that poor woman, she can't help it that I made her beautiful. She can't help it that her husband hasn't picked up after five years that he's got a faithful wife. And so he takes her down to the priest. She conceives a child for the exercise. I mean, the Lord is just good all the way around if you will look at every commandment and think about it and flush all political correctness and every idea that the PTA or the NEA or PETA would suggest that you have when you read those verses. The test of jealousy is awesome. It puts a woman in her place. There's no such test for men because women don't have a right to be jealous in the same way that a man has a right to be jealous. It's entirely different. The man wasn't made for you. And so there's there's so many facets of the lesson to be learned from the test of jealousy in Numbers chapter 5. Look at Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is learning about God from His law. When He gave that test of jealousy and realized that a man could pull the trigger on it and put his wife under that severe oath and fear, although she shouldn't fear if she's virtuous, he also defended her and protected her. And she could go home and start counting nine months. Praise the Lord. The Lord just look at every commandment. Deuteronomy 25.4, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. Now that's a short little verse, but I want to tell you again in light of Exodus 23.12, or ask you again, does God care about oxen? Yes, He does. And if an ox is going to tread out all your corn and have to smell that stuff and see that stuff while He's working all day, let Him have a little reward. Don't muzzle Him. Who is this speaking Is this Santa Claus? Who is this speaking? I am that I am is speaking. And I I want you to delight in seeing him through his commandments. One of his attributes is he is legislative. He just didn't put us down here and say, let them go at it. Do you know where we'd be right now? Let's not even think about where we'd be. Thank you, Lord, for your commandments. Now, from that little verse right there, can can we draw other lessons from it? If your children are out cutting your yard for you, should they get a little reward for it? It should be obvious to you. If you can't make the connection, you're probably not a Christian. Because there's supposed to be a system of rewards in God's scheme of things. And you know what the Apostle Paul would say, does God care for oxen? I think that he probably wrote this for ministers. He would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but a minister who is grinding out your corn and feeding you the Word of God should be able to make a a trade with you. He'll trade you some spiritual things for your natural things. And so the Apostle Paul takes this verse and applies it to the ministry, but notice it's all coming out of this God that we have telling us that it's His will 
for even oxen to be rewarded while they're working. Well, I was going to feed him when he got home that night. That's like a parent saying, I give him three meals a day. Why should I give him any more? I wonder if you're a Christian. Because that thought process is contrary to God. There's no discipline in that. There's just foolishness and cruelty. God said, don't muzzle the ox. He didn't say, feed him when he gets home after grinding out your corn for 12 hours. He said, take the muzzle off, and every time he gets the urge because he's crushing that fresh grain, he can just reach down and get himself a big mouthful and be chewing on it while he keeps going in a circle for you. I love the law of God. I want you to love it with me. Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry for I take so long in my time management. But bless these people to love you because of your law. Amen. Psalm 127, I'll give you a commandment to love. It's verse 2. It is vain for you to rise up early. Do you know what he's telling you? Don't waste your time getting up too early. It is vain for you to sit up late. Don't waste your time staying up too late when you're working on some project. It is vain for you to eat the bread of sorrows. Stop worrying and fussing about what you have facing you. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Who are the beloved? You and me. Who is the lover to make us beloved? Because to be beloved, somebody's loving us. It is, yes, the infinite, the independent, the omnipotent God of heaven. He loves us and he doesn't want us overworking. He doesn't want us overstressing. He doesn't want you fretting. He doesn't want you worrying. And if you will just do your reasonable best, don't get up too early. Don't stay up too late. Don't worry about it, but go to bed and sleep on it. I'll take care of the rest. And when he says, I'll take care of the rest, he will. He's done it for me every day of my life. Verse 1 says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. You know the verses because I have faithfully preached them to you, but I am reminding you of them today not to look at the rule, although I hope you're getting that as well. I hope that you're seeing there is a great God in heaven that is delightful that I can put all my trust in. He cares that I get a good night's sleep. He doesn't want me getting up too early, staying up too late, or eating the bread of sorrows. A husband may try to get you to do one of those three things, or all three of them, or a boss may try to get you to do that, or a teacher that doesn't know how to manage the workload might do that to you. But the real key is, go to sleep because God wants you to rest. This is the law of God. Is it a pain to you, or is His burden... Is his yoke easy and his burden light? Are his commandments grievous or are they exciting? That verse right there will save your life. If you will learn that verse. This doesn't mean that God tells us to retire on the job. It just tells us that there is a point where you shouldn't go in too early. You shouldn't stay up too late. Close the books. Go to bed and tell the Lord this verse. Memorize it. I tell it to him every single week of my life without exception. And he knows I'm speaking the total truth to you. Because the rest is in his hands. And I'll tell you, when it's in his hands, a lot more gets done than when it's in my hands. Oh, it's sweet. Because this is the law of God. Isn't it terrible? This God that wrote and legislated such things. Oh, brethren, 
How would we know about the necessity of blood if, if we hadn't seen blood in Eden? If we hadn't seen blood in all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, it all comes by the, the law of God. You're a parent and you have your, your children are growing up and you've got teenage children and, and, and they're, they're starting to test your authority. And yet you know in the Bible, God has defended your authority to the high heaven. And he's on your side. And be sure their sin will find them out. And what he's going to do if they rebel against you, what he's going to do if they dishonor you. There's so much comfort in the law of God. He's a God of order. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in three verses that the charismatics never read, preach, teach, believe, or practice. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. Well, let's start at 40 so you can get the idea. Let all things be done decently and in order. Our God is a God of order. So church assemblies should be structured. Church assemblies should have rules so that things are accomplished in an orderly and decent way. We don't have women falling on the floor that we're covering with blankets before they give a shot of their thighs to the rest of the congregation because they're supposedly just been slain in the spirit or they're in a barking revival where they're crawling around on the floor barking like a dog because the Holy Spirit's got a hold of them. Oh, yes, and if you don't know anything about the barking revivals, remember, anything I say can now be checked. In a one-second search, it's less than that. Google's algorithms are a whole lot faster than that. Type in barking revival. Let everything be done decently and in order. The Bible says it. Look at verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. Verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Not in some of them, not in the Baptist, you know, the The Pentecostals and Charismatics would say, well, that's about you Baptists. No, these are all churches of saints should have things done decently and in order and always to edifying. It should always be building up the body and making for peace. Right. Time would fail to tell. Of cities of refuge where the manslayer can run and find safety. Because the Lord gave the right to the relatives of a man killed by accident to kill you if you killed him by accident unless you could get to a city of refuge. You say, well, I don't understand that. If I killed somebody by accident, why could the relatives kill me? Because you should have been more careful. That's why. Have you ever gotten a ticket for rear-ending someone when they're the ones that stopped in front of you without brake lights? It doesn't matter. You were driving too fast and too close for conditions. I can't stop and explain each one of these, brethren. This is a long list that we're about to enter. But I want you to think about these. God's law is wonderful. He wants everyone to be very careful when it comes to life. And yet He wants justice to prevail 
So if you kill someone accidentally, you better have a fast moped to get to a city of refuge. And there the truth will be discovered. The city of refuge was not something you could just stay in while you were guilty. Oh, the, you know, you read, you read our laws and you just hang your head. I don't care what you think about our Constitution. Right. It doesn't even come close to the law of God. Right. Time would fail to explain. Cities of refuge. Deadly force at night. Provisions for women under polygamy. The definition of love. Shunning of fools and punishment of scorners. Church exclusion and recovery. Dowries. Commandments with rewards identified and attached. You children, you want to know what the law of God has to say for you? Do you want a good life and a long life and to be blessed in everything you do? Honor your father and your mother. Ephesians 6, 2 and 3. Widows indeed, just because you're a widow, doesn't mean the church should support you. According to 1 Timothy 5. Protection of the unborn. Does God look out for the unborn and have some rules for a child not yet born while the seed is still in its mother? How about a required vacation for the worship of God that used 10% of gross income? How's that for an onerous commandment? And what were you supposed to eat? Whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Who said that? The holy God of heaven. Whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. And you're afraid of him? Help me. What am I missing? I'm not angry with anyone. I just want you on the crown of the road of truth, loving this God who loved us. We are His beloved. He wants you to sleep. He dares you to try to outgive Him. Do you like to read those passages? I have a story of this week, and I don't know if I'll share it with you today or not. Unbelievable what the Lord does for this church by people outside this church. Unbelievable. He dares you to outgive him. Right. Bring your tithes and your offerings into my storehouse and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing you can't receive. Anyone who's ever tried real giving knows that the verse is true. And the more the verse is true and you try to outgive God, he's going to still outgive you. R.G. Letourneau, I know I quote him often because you ought to go look him up in a Google search box. R.G. Letourneau. He gave 90% of his income to the Lord and kept 10%. And they said, what about the 10? You only keep 10% for yourself. He said, it's still the Lord's money. Even the 10%. But he said, you know, how do I survive on giving 90%? I shovel it out to the Lord as fast as I can. And he shovels it back just as fast. But he's got a bigger shovel. This inventive genius that has 300 patents, 299 if you want to check me out, 299 patents for heavy earth-moving equipment for Gulf of Mexico drilling rigs. The guy was a genius, but he gave it to the Lord. You can't outgive the Lord. He dares you to try to outgive him. 
How about the philosophy of enjoying life before it is too late? Do you think the Christian life is boring? Have you ever heard Ecclesiastes preached? Right. Let your garments be always white and be anointed with, and enjoy the wife of thy youth and eat and drink your wine with a merry heart. And whatsoever thy hand find to do, do with thy might before the evil days come when you can't work. Right. A whole book given to us about enjoying life now before you're too old. It's that terrible God in heaven. I speak as a fool. He is terrible to his enemies. He is glorious to his children. He hates sexual infidelity. So he is the one that protects marriages, relationships, and love. Yet, on the other side, he commands sexual frequency the way you want it. If your marriage practices the Bible... He measures heart over ceremony because he knows that anyone can fake the outward motions. So if your heart is right, and even though you've overlooked the high places, this great God says of Asa, Asa, his heart is perfect. Look at Asa. He's perfect. Even though the high places were still up. You say, well, that couldn't be a holy God. That is the holy God. Your idea of the holy God is a distortion. Let's not distort him. Let's rejoice and glorify him. He hates sodomy, even though this nation may love it. He hates divorce, even though this nation may practice it in 60% of the licenses that have been granted in the last decade. And brethren, he doesn't want you to find a dam with her young. That means a mother bird with her eggs in a nest and take them both. And you will not see the kid in its mother's milk. You say, what in the world does that mean? You will not take a little kid that is still nursing off its mother and then boil that little piece of veal. That's precious veal when it's that young in its mother's milk. You say God's that particular in his commandments? Absolutely and definitely. He wants you to be careful about how you do everything and tender. And while you're being careful and tender toward other things that are far your inferior, are you getting the message that the God who wrote those rules treats you very tenderly and very carefully and very mercifully. He wants you to know him. And so he's given us a great law. There is no other like him. All the nations would look at Israel when they got a copy of that codified law. Unbelievable. A law like that. Do you know him? Don't distort him today. Do you know him? Do you love him? This God is worth You loving Him in every way of His nature, every aspect and every attribute. He is worthy of your love. Do you love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Will you serve Him? Let's serve Him with all of our hearts and strength. Let's burn ourselves out for Him with the days that He has given us. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.